a father arrives home from work, sees toys scattered all over the living room, and he explodes in anger. Gradually, the tension dissipates and the family settles into its normal evening routine. A mature believer overhears a conversation about a fellow church member who was stopped for speeding and given a ticket. She immediately calls another friend to tell her all about it. A student sees a classmate stumble and send all of his things sprawling across a crowded hallway. But he hurries on past because he does not want to be late for lunch. What do all these scenes uh, share in common? Oh yes, they all represent sin, don't they? Sinful behavior, but they're also sinful behaviors that come with a ready-made excuse. The father can tell himself, I've got a right to come home to an orderly and quiet household. The woman on the phone, she can say, well, I didn't say anything that wasn't true. I'm just speaking the truth. And the student can go through his busy afternoon schedule and and conclude, well, I've got to have my nourishment. How would I make it through the rest of the day? But we realize we can do that. We can rationalize virtually any kind of sin and make it seem like almost like not, not what choice that I have, but I made a choice and it's legitimate. After all, I am responsible ultimately to take care of myself. But what's the real problem here? It's that every instance of sinful behavior is in reality a defiant assertion that I can live my life the way I want to. Now we may, especially as God's people, but even unsaved people can afterward feel guilt and, and sorry, I guess I shouldn't have done that. I might even ask forgiveness. But the next opportunity to please ourselves, that same sense of, of I've got a right here, comes to the front again and tries to direct our decisions. Now, the world doesn't see anything wrong here uh, and, and continually urges us to demand your rights. But the Lord insists that no such rights exist. The Lord himself has the authority to tell every other person in this world how to live. 
That becomes clear in Matthew chapter 3 in the person of Jesus Christ. And this chapter, uh, Jesus emerges from the obscurity of his home in Nazareth, where he's been for about the last 30 years or so. And he comes to take his rightful place as the ruler of this world, the one who is in charge of everybody. Now, to get to that point where that's clear to everybody, it's a process. It's a process that's going to unfold over a lengthy period of time. But he's already that person. He, is al he already has that authority. This is just that first step. But this first step comes with a stern warning. All who will try to defy him will pay a very high price. The message of Matthew 3, and I invite you, I urge you to open your Bible to that passage. Let's look at this together. It's what God's word has to say that demands our attention today. But in this chapter, we're going to see that in the person of Jesus Christ, the promised king has arrived. He is here. And his kingdom is already in operation. And you've got a decision to make in response to that. That decision needs to be to choose the path of righteousness. Not please yourself, not do what you want, but do what is right according to his instruction, according to his standards. The king gets to set the standards of behavior in his kingdom. There are two aspects of that choice, choosing the path of righteousness. One is a negative side. There are some, some wrong things going on in life, in our lives, that have to stop, that have to change. And then there also is this second part. There are some positive things that have to take place to replace the negative. The first one is in verses 1 through 12. And, and in these verses, we have the recorded uh, account in Matthew of the forerunner that the Lord sent right before Christ came and appeared on the public scene. The forerunner is there to prepare the way for this coming king. And so his message uh, directs us toward this, what, what we have to do to prepare for that, uh, that king, that Messiah, is to repent from sin. So to choose the path of righteousness, you do that first by repentance, choosing to turn from your sin. And that begins by confessing your sin, acknowledging that it exists. So let's see in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. 
Now, I think it's helpful to have a picture in your mind where that is. If you have an idea of roughly the map of Israel, then you ought to have a map of Israel in your mind, the rough outlines of it at least. And in many cases, you can look at the, uh, at the newspaper or a news article today because that's uh, m- many times that's part of the news, whatever's going on in Israel. Well, think of Jerusalem right about in the middle, and Judea is everything south and east. The wilderness area is primarily in that eastern side, eastern side of the Jordan River, eastern side, uh, it's actually the western side, toward the east, the west side of the Jordan River, the west side of the Dead Sea. That's all Judea. And it's in that wilderness area that John the Baptist came preaching. Well, what is he preaching, we want to know. Matthew tells us right away in verse 2, his message, here's the summary. This is not all he had to say, but everything he said would fall under this heading. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. More literally, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's right here. And as soon as the king makes his appearance, it is here. The king and the kingdom coincide. And so you must repent. Repentance is, uh, is necessary because of the person who is about to come. Now, who authorized John to bring this message? Well, clearly it's God himself, and Matthew wants to to know that what John is doing in the wilderness is exactly what God said would happen right before the Messiah appeared. And so he quotes for us that key passage. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40. He says, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So John's location is important here, but his message is important as well. Isaiah says it this way, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John interprets that by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, it's our paths that are crooked. It's sin that has to change. Straighten out the crooked road. Your crooked road is the the personal message here, because when this king comes, he needs to find a straight path. And you need to be on that path. Prepare for the Messiah by turning from your sin. Something strike you as a little peculiar about that scene? If you had a message that you want everybody to hear, where are you going to go to proclaim it? Downtown? Some place where people are what is particularly notable about the wilderness is that nobody lives there it's empty 
except for maybe an occasional Bedouin passing on a camel. Uh, It's a rough place to live. It's a rough place to this day. You don't go to the wilderness if you want an audience. So who is he preaching to? How does anybody find out about this? Well, we don't know who first brought the word, but Matthew tells us how it happened that even in the wilderness, John got an audience. In fact, he got a multitude of people. Why was that? Who would go to the wilderness to hear a lonely preacher? Well, here's the explanation. Verse 4 says that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Okay, well, that's kind of interesting, Matthew. Why did we need to know that? Just kind of filling out the picture here for us. An austere man wearing rough clothes and eating a diet that, except for the honey, doesn't appeal to us at all. Now, there's another reason why Matthew's telling us what he wore and what he ate. There was a prophet of God in Israel centuries before. And the king of Israel, who was a wicked man, he knew that that prophet was responsible for the famine and the lack of rain going on in his kingdom. And so he was determined to find that prophet, and he's going to make him change the circumstances here. And so he sent out his uh, emissaries, trying to scour the woods and the valleys, trying to find this man. And one came back with a report, and he said, we found a man, and, he, and the, uh, we think it might be him. And the king said, well, what was he wearing? And they answered him, this comes from 2 Kings chapter 1. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a leather belt about his waist. And the king said, it's Elijah, just the man I'm looking for. And he knew him by his clothing. Matthew is telling us this man, John, looks wears the same garments as Elijah. Now, why is that significant? Okay, we are currently in only the third chapter of the New Testament. Hold your place here. We're going to go back just a few chapters to the last chapter of the Old Testament. The very last words of God before He fell silent as far as prophecy and scripture goes, and that silence lasted 400 years. That's like putting an exclamation mark at the end of the last things he had to say. What were his last words to his people in the Old Testament? We're in the book of Malachi. It's chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What day is that? 
It's the arrival of the king, the arrival of the Messiah. Before that, I'm going to send Elijah, which Christ himself interpreted later, pointing to John the Baptist as someone who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. John had his own circumstances. He's got his own name, his own body, but he is there representing, reflecting Elijah. Well, what is Elijah going to do? What is John the Baptist's purpose? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Wow, things have gotten really bad, haven't they? That fathers have to be turned back to love their children. Children have to be turned back to love and obey their parents. If they're not turned that way now, where are they? Everybody's turned to themselves. I am in control of my life. To prepare the hearts of fathers and children, parents, families, and here is is right at the heart of the most important unit in society. Clearly, it has affected negatively. Sin has affected society at every level. And John the Baptist is here to turn them back to God's plan, back to the path of righteousness before it's too late. What's the alternative to the path of righteousness? And again, these are the very last words of the Old Testament. They aren't very encouraging. They aren't very nice. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's the alternative. When this king comes, your choice is either you submit to him and you choose his path of righteousness or you're going to pay that very high price. You'll lose everything ultimately. All right, now we understand why one Bedouin brings back to civilization the message is there's somebody in the wilderness and he looks like Elijah and he's telling people That the Messiah is coming. The king is coming into his kingdom. Just like Malachi said. All right, that word would circulate uh, like wildfire throughout all of Judea and beyond. And suddenly there's a mad rush of people to get out to the wilderness. Nobody wants to miss seeing Elijah. Nobody wants to miss the opportunity of a lifetime of 400 years they've been waiting for this. And so they rush out there. Verse 5 tells us, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. The Jordan's a long river, by the way. It goes way up north, all that region. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan. And here's the point confessing their sins. You choose the path of righteousness by repentance first, and that begins with acknowledging your sin. 
Confession is simply agreeing with God. God says what I did was wrong. I'm not going to give excuses. I'm I'm going to give up on this rationalization. Lord, you're right. What I did was sinful. Repentance is changing your mind about that thing. Rather than, I think that's actually a really enjoyable thing to do. That's why I picked it. To, that's horrible. That's, that, that is a despicable decision that I made. And to set that aside. Now, they were being baptized by John. I'd like to point out that the baptism that John was doing was something entirely new. You look throughout the Old Testament, you're not going to find a precedent for what John was doing. He has come up with, of course, by the the Lord's direction, he's come up with a, uh, a technique of showing on the outside before others a decision that has been made on the inside. Uh, And that baptism was, of course, by immersion. The word baptism means immerse. There is no dispute about that. There's no theological uh, distinctions here we need to uh, uh, try to find. No, it means immerse. It always means immerse. And so John was immersing people in the Jordan River as an acknowledgement that they have confessed their sin in preparation for the Messiah. But you see, that's where it's different from Christian baptism. That was before a relationship with Christ. Christian baptism that starts with the church takes place after establishing a relationship with Christ. It looks the same and even has some overlap of meaning. I turn from my sin, but it's not the same thing. Uh, There was one occasion when Paul encountered a group of followers of John the Baptist, of all places, in the city of Ephesus. And as he's conversing with them, come to find out, they were among those crowds that came to John and confessed their sin in preparation for the Messiah, but then never actually encountered Christ, never heard about the, uh, the death of Christ and his resurrection. And you know what Paul did? He led them to Christ, and then he baptized them again, because it's not the same thing. Two separate kinds of baptism with a lot of connection between them. Repentance then begins by confessing your sin. But John notices in verses 7 through 12 that there are some suspicious characters among these crowds of people. And he's not at all sure they really mean it. He sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew takes a note of their presence in verse 7. He says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Oh, first, who are they? They're often lumped together, but they are actually polar opposites. They, are, they both have leadership uh, positions in society in the, in the first century. 
but they're, they're just the opposite. The Pharisees are the theological conservatives, the strict adherents to the law, uh, but, but they don't have a, a genuine love for God. They just want to uh, draw attention to themselves by their uh, close obedience to, the, to what God says. The Sadducees are on the other end of the spectrum. They are liberals. They don't believe the Bible, but, they, uh, but they're in charge of the temple. Think of that. Uh, and they are also uh, very powerful individuals. And both of them are entrenched in society and are really comfortable with where they are and their position and their power and their influence and don't want to see anything shake that up. John's message was going to shake that up big time. So he says, well, here they come, but I'm not so sure they, they mean it when they say I'm turning from my sin. So he's got a stern message for them. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance is not just confessing your sin. It is also forsaking that sin. He knows the Pharisees and Sadducees would have been ready to say, wait, wait, who are you talking to? Children of Abraham here. I mean, there is a special place in God's heart for us. And John's ready with an answer. He says, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And those that have traveled to the Holy Land know there are lots of stones. You're replaceable, he's telling the Sadducees and Pharisees. Uh, you don't have a, a place in God's plan without turning from your sin. His warning goes even further. He says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know what he's referring to here. What's it mean to lay the ax to the root of the tree? Well, first of all, it's the root the protruding root coming away from the trunk, not the trunk itself. This is total eradication. Not just a stunt. There won't be anything left when this axe handler is done. To lay the, the, I think there must be something instinctive. Somebody has an axe in their hand, and before they swing, they go down and they just touch the place where, the, where they want to strike. The very next move is to cut. That's how close you are, John is saying. God already has the ax there. All he's got to do is swing it back and you're done. There's an urgency here to choose the path of righteousness. There's an urgency to forsake the sin that you have been willing to confess. 
John gives some further reason for urgency. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, that's important. You're getting wet, really wet, but it's just water. One is coming after me. The one who is coming, the one he is preparing for here, he says, is mightier than I. Now, that's a huge statement. John the Baptist reflects Elijah. But even apart from the connection with Elijah, Christ later identifies John as the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. The greatest one. And there's a, there's a long list of uh, pretty illustrious people. He rises right to the top. John says, the one coming after me, I mean, you, you, you think I'm intimidating? The one coming after me is mightier than I. How much mightier? Whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. The most menial task of the lowest servant. And I'm not even qualified to do that for this man. All right, the greatest prophet? And this other is so much greater. What could he be other than God himself? That's what John is acknowledging. He's giving uh, enough evidence for people to conclude uh, this one who is coming, uh, he's got authority. He's got power. I baptize you with just water, and it's going to dry, John says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit, this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when Christ poured the Holy Spirit upon his people. Baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's the fire doing there? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that he sends. And one of his responsibilities is to make the recipients of the gift of the Holy Spirit holy. This is his refining fire, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers to help them continue to forsake sin and choose the path of righteousness. You see, false repentance, no change of life, is still in line for God's wrath. But true repentance receives God's grace. The grace that comes through the Holy Spirit himself. Verse 12 makes, that, makes the two options uh, stark, putting them side by side. This one who comes, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. That's through separation of this process of threshing and winnowing. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
At the end of this process, all who are genuinely his people, he will gather safely home. Those that have proven by how they live that they actually never had any relationship with Christ, they continued to insist on the right to live the way they want, will be like the chaff that he'll burn with unquenchable fire. He's clearly referring to hell. Those are the two choices. Christ stands at the middle, he's the judge. I read the story about a a young man who began selling cocaine and stealing cars to get cash. As he got good at it, pretty skilled, he found he could could support a pretty lavish lifestyle and he really got to to enjoy that all the way up until the moment when he was finally caught and sentenced to prison. Now, while he was in prison, he attended a chapel service that concluded that day with the preacher urging the men to come forward and get Jesus in their heart. Well, he decided to come forward and got to the front. He says he broke down in tears. And the man up front said, here, repeat this prayer after me, which he dutifully did. And then the man in a big smile says, now you're saved, all your sins forgiven. Okay, he went back to his seat. Sometime later, when he appeared before his parole board, he, uh, he recounted that experience to them. Uh, they took that into consideration and decided, among other things, to release him early. As soon as he got out, Yeah, you guessed it. Right back to selling cocaine, stealing cars. What was missing? What was missing was repentance. Turning from sin. Repentance implies a change of direction. I'm on this road I don't like the destination that's up ahead. The only way to avoid that destination is to choose a different path. I think graphically we picture it best as going in the opposite direction. It's a a different path, different characteristics, and it has a different destination. No matter what you say at that moment, If there is no turn, if there is no forsaking of that path, if there's not an adopting of the path of righteousness, then there is no change of heart and there's no change of destination. No doubt we have many with us today that have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Has God's word been clear enough where that's going to take you? You can continue on the path that you've been on and the end result is sad beyond words, tragic. 
or you can trust Christ as your Savior. A free gift that he offers. He will forgive all your sin. You just need to make the decision to turn from that sin. To trust him instead. Our prayer is that you will do that. Maybe you'll, would you do that even before you leave our building today? We would love to be a part of that process of, of uh, making sure that when you leave, there's a genuine repentance by God's grace and real faith in Christ. Now, turning away from sin by itself isn't enough to stay on that path of righteousness. So now Jesus actually enters the scene in verse 13 and demonstrates for us the positive side of this. So there's a real dramatic moment in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee, where he's been living, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John sees something incongruous in all of this, and John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? What does John actually know at this point? Well, according to John's gospel, he doesn't really know who the Messiah is. He's there preaching, preparing the way for this coming king, but God hasn't told him yet who it is. Now, he does know about Jesus. Remember, they are related. Uh, Both of their mothers were cousins. So he's no doubt had some contact with Jesus during their uh, years of growing up, not in the same location, but they must have had some interchange. And my guess is that it's from that experience that John, though he doesn't know that his cousin Jesus is the Messiah, he does know he's a way better person than I am. John's testimony would be, I have struggled with sin in my life. I don't know of a single instance, whenever we played together as children or any report I've heard about him since, in which he ever did anything wrong. He's better than I am. I should be getting baptized by you. I think that's the basis. Because he doesn't actually know for sure. He might be able to guess. But it's not until after the baptism, as God gave him a sign, watch for the person who, on whom the Holy Spirit descends. That'll be the one. Well, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. It's com- uh, coming up here pretty quick. But uh, it's on the basis of, of, of Christ's life that John says, I should be the one getting baptized here. And he's got a really good point. Why is Jesus uh, want to be baptized in John's baptism that represents repentance from sin if, in fact, he has no sin to confess? Jesus' answer, though, is, uh, uh, leaves us still a little bit puzzled, but satisfied, he answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
What's Christ's real goal here? There is a path that God has set out, and Christ is determined to follow that path. Now, he's been doing that for 30 years, but he's been doing it more as a private citizen. Now, as he enters the public arena and is about to begin his ministry, his assigned role from God, he wants to be a part. He wants to, first of all, identify with John, endorsing John's ministry as coming from God, as the call for repentance, as uh, saying that's the right thing for John to be doing. He doesn't have any sin of his own to confess, but it's still legitimate for him to turn away from all the alternative paths and choose the path of righteousness. Now, some suggest that perhaps he's also repenting from sin in the more traditional sense, kind of like re- vicarious repentance, everything that Christ did and dying on the cross and so forth, he did in our place. Maybe he's repenting in our place. Well, that's kind of intriguing, but we don't get confirmation of that anywhere else in Scripture. But I think that he is making a choice here. There's no sin to leave. He hasn't done any sin. To this point, his choice has been, no, I'm not going to commit that sin. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to indulge myself. Over and over, he's made the decision. And now he makes it public. I am determined to follow the path of righteousness because God's assignment for me requires it. I must resist sin to fulfill my role. So John consented. This is Christ devoting himself to the mission that God had given to him. And that devotion for our lives as well begins with commitment. When you decide, I am turning away from sin, I decide to live for God. This is the crucial moment in Christ's life when he decided to accept his role. And in his case, God told him what that was going to involve. A brutal, horrifying death. After a life largely of rejection by the very people that he came to save. Whoa, what a difficult assignment God gave to him. And he, and he knows what this is going to be like. And at this moment, he says, I'll do it. I'll devote myself to that responsibility because that's what God wants. And so doing, he's setting the pattern for all of us. I will turn from pleasing myself 
The difference is that we don't know what that assignment is, what all of the details are going to look like. But we declare in devoting ourselves to God, whatever it is, I'll do it. And I'll turn from the path of sin because that's what God requires. Devotion begins with your commitment to God. And that kind of devotion results in God's provision for you. Summarized here in just two statements. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, something startling, uh, Matthew's about to report, the heavens opened. There's a hole in the sky. And through that hole up into heaven, he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, on Matthew's account, it's Jesus that sees that. So this is for his benefit. But in some of the other gospel accounts, it's John the Baptist that sees it, and it's for his benefit too. It's at that point that John concludes, ah, he is the Messiah. And I think we can forgive him if he added in the thought, I knew it all along. But what's this mean to Christ? The Holy Spirit came upon him and came to rest on him. This was not a temporary coming of the Spirit. He was coming to stay with Christ. Now, this is not an actual bird. It looks like a bird. It acts like it in arriving upon Christ. But then he stayed with Christ. Why does Christ need the Holy Spirit? That's an intriguing question. But what we find in the following passages that we'll get to is that he came to lead. And Christ chose to follow him. Think of that. The Son of God needs a leader? How much more do we need a leader? A guide. Well, God's ready to provide him. And he provides him for all of his children, all who come to Christ. But verse 17, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. This is that word for love that means I am committed to him. I choose to meet all his needs. This is a promise, an an implied promise that God's power is at the disposal of this servant. He is my beloved son. I am not going to watch him come up empty in anything that he needs to fulfill his responsibility. God provides his spirit. God provides his power. And in so doing, endorses this decision 
to choose the path of righteousness. He will have a similar endorsement for you if you choose that same path. Choose the path of righteousness by devoting yourself to God. Now, Jesus is a powerful king. But that power also means he is fully equipped to help you do the very thing that he chose to do. If you'll ask him for his help. Let's bow for prayer now and take advantage of a few quiet moments to tell Jesus you need his help to choose that path of righteousness. Father, we thank you today for your son. Thank you that he is king, that your kingdom is in operation and will be visible on this earth one day in the future. Father, we acknowledge our sinfulness, our waywardness. We thank you that the death of Christ has paid for our sin. Father, would you help us choose then every day to forsake the path of sin, to choose the path of righteousness, and to devote ourselves to the task you have set before us. Father, we need your grace to do that. We pray for your full supply and for victory. In Jesus' name, amen.